Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Today we're going to explore a shocking development that left me stunned. I was devastated when I learned of it, so much so that I struggled to hold back the lump in my throat. I tossed and turned in bed for the next couple of nights. I could not concentrate on my work during the day. Nevertheless, I am so thankful for the Word of God that guides our understanding of the truth in the midst of error and deception. As the enemy ratchets up his power, God does the same for his people. So today's sobering message is meant to encourage you to remain faithful to the Lord even when all around you give way and yield to the powerful deceptions of the enemy. Before we begin, let me remind you about our new DVD series called Firebell in the Night. This 10-part series will show you how close we are to the precipice of losing our religious liberty. And it's only $45 USD plus postage and $58 AUD plus postage. You can get it by calling our office either in Virginia or in Australia. You need to keep up to date. This series is certainly going to do that. Also tell your friends about Keep the Faith Ministry. We need you to be an ambassador for God in spreading the word about the fulfilling prophecies and what to expect in the future. Your friends also need to know how to prepare their minds for the coming crisis and the end of the world. As we begin, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, please give us your love for lost souls. Please show us how to understand our times and the soon coming conflict between the followers of Jesus and the followers of the enemy. The world is being divided into two camps, and we want to be in the right one. So please give us victory over the enemy's temptations, show us how to live a victorious life, and most of all, send your Holy Spirit today to teach us what we must know for our salvation. Friends, I trembled as I prepared this message because it is addressing a disturbing issue that is becoming a major force in God's church. We are told in Scripture that the enemy has the remnant church in his crosshairs. So why should we be surprised? Let us read about it in Revelation 12, verse 17. And the dragon, that's Satan, was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This passage reveals that the very last church is going to get an attack that is virtually overmastering and powerful. We must be prepared for it. We cannot slack off and become negligent in our daily walk with God. We cannot bury our heads in the sand and leave it to others to sort out. Each person is going to have to decide for themselves whether to go along with it or resist the tide of human momentum, the peer pressure, and the outright hostility that is going to be leveled at God's faithful people. They will be ridiculed as they did to Noah in his day. They will be derided and condemned like Elijah. They will be mocked and scorned as were many of God's people who faithfully stood against the tide of evil in the intervening centuries. And they will be threatened and accused like Jeremiah and Isaiah. 
The popular religious leaders will oppose them and misrepresent them with pious arguments. Are you ready for all that? Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's back up and think about what we've covered in the last few months. First, over the last year and a half, I did a series of messages on the life of Samson and his addiction to heathen women. This was really a series of sermons designed to warn God's people from joining the ecumenical movement and dabbling with the daughters of Babylon. Samson is a prophetic prototype of the people of God who give the powerful three angels messages, especially under the power of the latter reign, just before Jesus comes in the clouds of glory. As I prepared those messages, I had no idea that I would be preparing today's sermon. But God's timing is always amazing. I didn't know why he led me to do the series on the life of Samson, but he did. And now I know why. The ecumenical movement is dangerous, my friends, because it leads down the path of compromise until God's church is so blinded by their so-called opportunities to unite with the fallen churches of Babylon that they become addicted to those ecumenical alliances. They cannot understand God's purpose for the last generation, and they resist the idea that there is a remnant with a clear and distinctive message that God has ordained for the last generation to give to the world. Then I prepared a message on the direct attack on the three angels' messages coming from within God's church. I pointed out how the intellectuals, the seminary professors, and other leaders are attacking last-generation doctrine, or theology as they like to call it, and how that is preparing God's church to accept ecumenical engagements in the interest of uniting with these fallen churches. Then I prepared a sermon on the Greeks and how they used what we would call interfaith activities to merge their cultures and in the process destroy the true faith of God's people in the coming Messiah, so that they missed his coming, rejected him, and crucified him. Now, if you have missed hearing any of those messages, please go back and hear them. Listen to them a second time if that would benefit you. It will lay a powerful foundation for what you are going to hear today. Having gone through all those messages, I was stunned when I saw what I'm going to share with you today. I do not want to share these things, and I wrestled with whether or not I should for quite some time. One day I was sitting on a plane and had downloaded some material sent to me by a friend of mine. As I scrolled through it, I realized an overwhelming sense of disappointment and sorrow for God's people. I felt like Jeremiah who wept and lamented the sorrowful condition of God's church. I anguished in my mind over whether to present these things because I know there will be people that will say that I am just criticizing or being judgmental or that I am an alarmist or that I have an axe to grind. But that's the last thing from my mind. I have no desire to criticize. I believe we need to pray for those who claim to be leaders. I'm troubled, my friends, by what I see. I'm not in the least angry or upset at anyone. I'm merely fulfilling the commission that God has given me in warning you of the coming crisis for God's people and warning you of the devastating and deceptive activities of the enemy even among God's people. Listen to this important statement. It's from Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 122. We have far more to fear from within than from without. The hindrances to strength and success are far greater from the church itself than from the world. 
Unbelievers have a right to expect that those who profess to be keeping the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus will do more than any other class to promote and honor by their consistent lives, by their godly example, and their active influence the cause which they represent. But how often have the professed advocates of the truth proved the greatest obstacle to its advancement? The unbelief indulged, the doubts expressed, the darkness cherished, encourage the presence of evil angels and open the way for the accomplishment of Satan's devices. Friends, this happens in the world all the time. The news media mock and ridicule people with biblical convictions. They take aim even at national leaders who try to live out their Christian faith publicly. They suggest that they can privately believe what they want, but that they don't have the right to live it out in public where everyone can see them. Their unbelief in the public square is matched by a similar unbelief of God's truth in His church. That's the world we live in today, my friends. The enemy is everywhere. He has to be given permission from the throne room to manifest himself and his deceptions in the church as well as in the world. In the last eight verses of Matthew 24, Jesus makes this astonishing statement. Let us read it and analyze it. Beginning with verse 44. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. So just when all the evidence points to a long delay in the Lord's return, just when it looks like there is no Sunday law coming, or just when there is no evidence that Sabbath keepers will be persecuted for their faith, that's when it all happens and ushers in the coming of the Lord. Suddenly, we are told, God will change the way He deals with the human race. Listen to this interesting statement from Fundamentals of Education, page 356. There will soon be a sudden change in God's dealings. The world in its perversity is being visited by casualties, by floods, storms, fires, earthquakes, famines, wars, and bloodshed. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, yet He will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet." Oh, that men might understand the patience and long-suffering of God. He's putting under restraint his own attributes. His omnipotent power is under the control of omnipotence. Oh, that men would understand that God refuses to be wearied out with the world's perversity and still holds out the hope of forgiveness even to the most undeserving. But his forbearance will not always continue. Who is prepared? for the sudden change that will take place in God's dealing with sinful men. Who will be prepared to escape the punishment that will certainly fall upon transgressors? So you see, my friends, it appears that the dealings of God with perverse men who laugh at His warnings and who mock and ridicule His followers and who sin with defiance and impunity will suddenly change. This suggests that it will be a great surprise when God changes His dealings with the human race. Friends, I cannot bear to let you go unwarned, unalerted, and unprepared for the very things that are going to catch most men by an overwhelming surprise. Let us return to Matthew 24 and read a bit more. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Friends, what is this saying? It is asking, where are the faithful men and women who will warn the people of the coming destruction and the surprising, shocking events that will unfold in the near future? Where are they? 
They are very few and far between. It is politically correct, even in the churches these days, to avoid any mention of the false doctrine that's being preached from the pulpits. It is politically incorrect to raise any concern about the way in which church members and leaders live their lives. And it is politically correct to criticize and ridicule those who would warn God's people of the coming train wreck. The blindness and deception is almost pervasive, and we need the warning of God. Will you be a faithful and wise servant? Now verse 46 and 47. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you, that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. You want to be happy and blessed? Then warn your friends and fellow church members and those of the world of the sudden change that is coming upon the world and upon God's people. Then you will find peace and happiness, not in their approval, but in knowing that you are doing the will of God. Then you can be assured that the Lord will bless you in eternity with much. You may suffer persecution here, my friends, but what is the outcome? You will have much in the kingdom of heaven. Your faithfulness on earth will give you rich rewards in the kingdom of heaven. The new earth will be populated by people such as you, who have stood for the right though the heavens fall, who have given the unpopular message even though it has cost them dearly. But now what happens to those who are unfaithful to their calling, who teach the politically correct version of things, and who refuse to warn of the coming change of God's dealings with perverse human nature? Now verse 48 and 49. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken. Have you thought about what this is saying? What does wine symbolize in the Bible? That's right, doctrine. The wine of Babylon represents false doctrine. If you get drunk in biblical symbology... You have become inebriated with false doctrine and cannot stand up straight doctrinally. You are deceived and may think that everything is okay, but you stumble around in confusion. In our modern context, when we are drawn into the ecumenical movement, we thereby lose our connection to God and become confused about our mission to give the three angels messages, especially the last two. This leads us to stop protesting the errors and sins of Babylon, and it leads us to eventually unite with Rome in her false teachings. Those who don't like the prophecies of Scripture about the end of time are most vulnerable to the idea that we are not nearing the end, that the last generation concepts are merely leftovers from the Victorian era when the great controversy was written. Those who think that the Lord isn't coming soon will then begin to oppose, isolate, or marginalize, and even persecute those who do give the warning. In other words, it is becoming so unpopular to give the three angels messages that we have taken the symbols off our church signs, we have moderated our preaching, so that we now mostly give sermons on love, unity, and an emaciated gospel that cannot save anyone. We prevent those who teach the true message from having church office, from speaking in our pulpits, and from opportunities that would grant them an audience to a considerable extent. Now verse 50. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his, his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
So in the end, who is going to have shame all over them? Who is going to have to face the ignominy of public disgrace when Jesus suddenly changes his dealings with the human race? It will be those who have refused to give the message of warning. It will especially be those who have had great light and who have known the three angels' messages and who have been given the commission to proclaim it, but who have refused to do so because of opposition or its unpopularity or its cutting nature or whatever else. Friends, the ecumenical spirit is everywhere pervading the churches. They are uniting together with Rome and they are seeking to find peace with the enemy. This spirit is everywhere these days. That ecumenical spirit is Satan's masterpiece designed to get all the churches to unite together on their common beliefs and lay aside anything that is distinctive in their doctrines. Keep in mind that this is especially targeted to the last generation of the remnant. The other churches are not so different that they cannot find common ground with each other and, for that matter, with Rome. But with God's remnant church, there is no ground of sympathy. There is very little common ground. We've been given a special work in these last days, a clear message to give. But we ourselves have become confused about it and have become afraid of it. How can we expect God's approbation if we refuse to do what he has called us to do? How can we leave men in darkness? How can we let the enemy wreak havoc without putting up some protest? Do we have unbelief manifested today among God's people concerning who they are and what their message is? Of course we do. Notice that the earlier statement said that we have more to fear from within than from without. You see, my friends, the enemy knows that if he can get God's last remnant to disbelieve their own message and adjust their views, he can overcome them and that they will be controlled by him. They will then smite their brethren and persecute anyone who is raising the alarm. You see, the enemy wants you to fall asleep and take your ease and to indulge yourself. He knows that if he can get you to think that there is peace and safety, then you won't be prepared for the sudden destruction. It's a master plot, my friends, a conspiracy if there ever was one. And you can't afford to fall for it. You can't let yourself be deceived by it. The enemy wants to get you to disbelieve God's truth, disbelieve his messenger that he has sent to you, and finally get you smiting your fellow brethren. How does he do this? How do you smite your fellow brethren? It's easy. Just criticize them. Oh, he's a little bit fanatical. Or she wears such old-fashioned clothing. Or I wish they weren't so judgmental. These are all false charges brought upon God's true messengers. They may actually apply to some people. You know, the enemy will raise up a few of them to be able to excuse these descriptions of those who are faithful to the Lord. But underneath it all, he is taking aim at God's true messengers. He will derail those who are afraid to give the message, and they will eventually reject the Holy Spirit in the latter reign as verily as the Jews rejected Christ as the Messiah. What makes us think that we are any safer than they were? Will we have to come under the power of spiritual Babylon in these last days for our unbelief and disobedience, just as they came under the power of the literal Babylon in those days? We have, for so long, tried to justify ourselves, our worship styles, and our relationships, that we are now in danger of turning from the light that God has given us and replacing it with darkness. And there are those among us who are determined to remove from God's people their distinctive message and mission and change it to a more evangelical message and an ecumenical mission. 
You may remember that the Bible tells us there were men hiding in the bedchamber of Delilah. Do you think there are men hiding among God's people today who are doing the same thing, waiting for an opportunity to constrict or control God's people? Listen to this statement from the pen of inspiration. It is from Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 204. I'm going to go through this bit by bit. The enemy of souls has sought to bring in the supposition that a great reformation was to take place among Seventh-day Adventists and that this reformation would consist of giving up the doctrines which stand as the pillars of our faith and engaging in the process of reorganization. So the enemy wants to reorganize the belief system of God's people today. We should be watching for it. It may not be a new structure, though there may well be some elements of that. But notice that there is an enthusiasm for some so-called great reformation. Do you know what that reformation is? You should. That reformation has to do with removing the old landmarks that make God's people distinctive from all other people. That alleged reformation is to make God's remnant people more like the ecumenical churches. There are those among us who want to merge the churches together, just as the Greeks did during the 400 years before Christ. They want to get rid of our distinctive message and get closer to the fallen churches of Babylon. The reformation spoken of here is about ecumenism and uniting with other churches on the doctrines that we hold in common. That reformation also consists of a distorted understanding of righteousness by faith, which has been brewing for more than 50 years. It has been out in the open for quite some time, but now it is starting to manifest itself brazenly against the plain teachings of the Lord. That process of reorganization may have started with doctrinal issues, but it is now manifesting itself in false principles of worship, such as celebration worship styles, the one movement, women's ordination, and the like. All doctrinal falsehoods eventually lead to practical improprieties and behavior. I'll continue reading. Were this reformation to take place, what would result? The principles of truth that God in his wisdom has given to the remnant church would be discarded. Do you think there are those who are attempting to do that? That's one of the points I've been documenting over the last year and a half. They despise last-generation doctrine, which involves the three angels' messages and the great controversy theme, the idea of a remnant living in the last days with a unique message and mission, a hatred kindled against the testimonies that is satanic. All these and more are very strong today. I'll read on. Our religion would be changed. The fundamental principles that have sustained the work for the last 50 years would be accounted as error. When theologians and professors say that last-generation doctrine and all that it stands for was never part of the mainstream teachings of God's church, they have crossed the line. There would be no book called The Great Controversy if its teachings were not part of the mainstream thinking of God's people. And it was first published in 1884. The concept of the remnant was reached quite early on once they worked out what really happened in the sanctuary in heaven in 1844. It, too, has been a key part of the mainstream thought and doctrine of God's church for 175 years. I'll continue. A new organization would be established. Books of a new order would be written. A system of intellectual philosophy would be introduced. The founders of this system would go into the cities and do a wonderful work. Friends, do we have books of a new order being written today? And do they support a new system of intellectual philosophy, which thinks it knows better than God and His Word? 
You see, they are attacking the idea that there is a remnant and the great controversy concept, and especially the three angels' messages. I'll continue on. The Sabbath, of course, would be lightly regarded as also the God who created it. Nothing would be allowed to stand in the way of the new movement. The leaders would teach that virtue is better than vice, but God being removed, they would place their dependence on human power, which without God is worthless. Oh, my friends, let us not think that we are going to be able to breeze through this easily. Your faith will be tried and tested. My faith will be ridiculed and misrepresented. There are some that are doing everything they can to make sure that the true message isn't heard. Here's the final sentence of that passage. Their foundation would be built on the sand, and storm and tempest would sweep away the structure. That's from Special Testimonies Series B, number 7, page 39. Hidden behind the scenes, my friends, there are men who are working to undermine God's truth. Some of them are coming out in the open, but some of them are not. One of those who is coming out in the open is a man named Reinder Brownsma. This man is a retired president of the Netherlands Union, who is now being paraded around to various camp meetings, teaching that we need to adjust our understanding of inspiration, and that our understanding of the great controversy needs to be revised. He also claims that last-generation doctrine is false doctrine. This Reinder Brownsma also teaches that the Sunday law will not come for a very long time. Does he think he understands what's going on better than God does? He recently wrote an article called Our Sunday Laws Coming. It was published on December 7, 2018 in Adventist Today, a liberal online journal that documents and supports the opposition to God's truth. I'm going to read this article to you so that you can see the kind of arguments that are going to come against you in the near future if they haven't already. For a few weeks, a supermarket close to the apartment building where we live is open on Sundays. Sunday shopping has long been a hotly debated issue in local politics. Until recently, the influence of the religious parties was strong enough to frustrate the attempts by the rest of the local council to allow all shops to be open on Sundays, even if the shop owners so desire. At long last, things are changing in our village of some 22,000 inhabitants, as they have been gradually changing in most places in our traditionally Calvinist country. In the Thursday issue of my daily newspaper, one of the Christian dailies of our country, I found an interesting article about Sunday observance in the United States. For a major percentage of the population of the United States, Sunday is rapidly losing its importance. Only a third of all Americans avoid paid work. And for only 10%, shopping on Sunday remains taboo. And only 6% feels that Sunday observance is incompatible with visiting an amusement park. Can you see where his argument is heading? He's laying a foundation to say that instead of moving toward a Sunday law, society is moving away from Sunday law. Reading on, there is an ever-deepening chasm between the reality of Sunday observance in today's Western world and the message that continues to be heard in some quarters of the Adventist church, namely that we will soon have to face severe Sunday laws which will force every citizen to keep Sunday and will make life extremely difficult for those who insist on keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath sacred. However, the expectation that in the end of time a universal Sunday law will be enforced by the civil authorities upon the insistence of the public and at the demand of the apostate churches seems to be more and more unrealistic. Admittedly, there are a few groups 
and organizations that continue to urge legislation to enforce strict Sunday observance. But in reality, the overall trend is toward less, rather than more, strict Sunday keeping. In the Western world, the Sunday of church worship is rapidly being replaced by a Sunday of amusement and shopping and by a day when people also want to see their packages with their online orders delivered. So in other words, we are not supposed to expect a Sunday law anytime soon, my friends. This isn't happening and will not happen for a very long time, according to Reinder Brownsma. But what does God say is happening? Here is a pointed statement from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 452. While men are sleeping, Satan is actively arranging matters so that the Lord's people may not have mercy or justice. The Sunday movement is now making its way in darkness. The leaders are concealing the true issue, and many who unite in the movement do not themselves see whither the undercurrent is tending. Its professions are mild and apparently Christian, but when it shall speak, it will reveal the spirit of the dragon. Does Mr. Brownsma realize what he's doing? He's denying the truth of the very inspired source that God has sent to warn him and arouse him to greater vigilance. He's now saying that it is all a big hoax, a relic of the past, and that we don't have to heed the counsel of the Lord's messenger anymore. This is the very epitome of the statement we just read before about the big change that will come to God's church in the last days. There will be those who will try to change our religion and remove the fundamental principles. Are these men working for God? I hardly think so. That means they are under the banner of another leader. I hate to think of their end result. Here's another statement that Mr. Brownsma ignores. It is as if he is on a mission to undermine the teachings of God's word for this very time in earth's history. God's word has given warning of the impending danger. Let this be unheeded and the Protestant world will learn what the purposes of Rome really are only when it's too late to escape the snare. She is silently growing into power. Her doctrines are exerting their influence in legislative halls, in the churches, and in the hearts of men. She is piling up her lofty and massive structures in the secret recesses of which her former persecutions will be repeated. Stealthily and unsuspectedly, she is strengthening her forces to further her own ends when the time shall come for her to strike. All that she desires is vantage ground, and this is already being given her. We shall soon see and shall feel what the purpose of the Roman element is. Whoever shall believe and obey the word of God will thereby incur reproach and persecution. That's from The Great Controversy, page 581. Mr. Brownsma is denying the very principles of Rome when he says that a Sunday law is not coming in the near future. But wouldn't you expect that the enemy would raise up those among God's people to teach that Rome has changed and that she does not have a Sunday law agenda right at the very time when it is all about to happen? Of course. I don't know how long it will take for a Sunday law to fulfill the prophetic testimony of God's word and of his servant, but I believe the Bible, my friends. I choose to believe that the Bible is more accurate than any human being can possibly be and that every prophetic utterance will be fulfilled to the letter. I choose to believe the Bible over the statements of Reinder Brownsma. I'll read on from Brownsma's terrible assault on God's prophetic truth. And I quote, Adventists must ask themselves, Does the Bible clearly predict a time when merciless Sunday laws will be enforced? we should realize that this Sunday Law scenario is mainly based on the interpretation of the prophecies of the Revelation by Ellen White in her book, The Great Controversy. So now he's going to attack The Great Controversy book. 
This is at the very root of our very clear understanding of God's prophetic truth at this time. He's essentially saying that the book Great Controversy is wrong, and that it is from an era that no longer exists. He's also saying, without saying it, that its author was not under the inspiration of God when she wrote that book, otherwise it would still be valid today. He's actually taking a shot at the prophet. And that should be no surprise, my friends. In fact, it constitutes one of the last deceptions of the enemy. Here it is from Last Day Events, page 177. The very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Where there is no vision, the people perish, Proverbs 19.18. Satan will work ingeniously in different ways and through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant people in the true testimony. But I should also point out that Rinder Brownsma has obviously not read the book of Revelation, especially Revelation chapter 13 that talks about worship laws being imposed on the planet in the last days. Undermining confidence in the testimony of the Spirit of God is the last deception, whether it's for the Bible or the spirit of prophecy. And Brownsma is certainly doing that, telling us that we are very near the very thing he denies will happen. I'll continue reading from the article. For some, this means that against all present appearances, the Sunday laws are coming, because she says so. For others, it means that Ellen White was wrong, and that she is thereby disqualified as a prophetic beacon for the Adventist believers. Friends, prophecies have always been fulfilled when it seems most unlikely, when to all present appearances it looks impossible. That's one of the main principles of Bible prophecy. I do not personally believe that the Sunday law is coming because of a human statement. Because she says so is not why I believe what the book The Great Controversy says. I believe that God has said so in human words, just as the prophets of the Old and New Testaments. The book of Revelation, particularly chapter 13, makes it very clear that worship laws are coming as part of the end-time scenario with its ultimate death penalty. And while secularism has overtaken the Western world, it has already begun to lay down a precedent for undermining religious liberty in its own way, namely with regard to equality and support for the LGBTQ plus movement. That precedent, when matured and expanded, will be used to justify further loss of religious liberty under the pressure of natural disasters or other national and global emergencies that will shake the nations. The Obama administration gave us a classic example of how religious liberty is already being undermined. Both President Obama and Mrs. Clinton tried to reframe the discourse on religious liberty many times and reduce it to mere worship. They both made this abundantly clear with multiple statements that they believe in freedom of worship. This sounds good, but it's a long way from freedom of religion. In other words, you may worship however you choose, but you cannot live your convictions in the marketplace because that would offend the equality movement for the LGBTQ plus and other causes, which now override religious freedom, even in free America. When the United States was established, religious liberty was the most fundamental freedom. That has now been replaced by equality. And Mr. Brownsmith thinks that these things are not significant in terms of laying the foundation needed for end-time Sunday laws. He's burying his head in the sand, at the very least. But it gets worse. He then attacks the concept of inspiration that God uses to convey information and guidance to man. Let me read on, and I quote, 
for me, it means that we must revise our concept of inspiration. Friends, do you realize what he's saying? He has no confidence in God's messenger to the remnant. How can he, since he doesn't believe in a remnant in the first place? Revising our ideas of inspiration really means that he places his judgment above the messenger that God has sent. It is sheer arrogance, my friends. How much more deceived can you be than to think that you know better than God? This is not uncommon in today's world. Mr. Brownsma does not accept that what God has said through the author of the book, The Great Controversy, is correct concerning end-time events. He doesn't think she can be trusted in today's modern world. Notice how he justifies his position by saying that Ellen White wrote a long time ago when things were different. She wrote in the circumstances of her own time. The only trouble is all prophecy was written a long time ago when it was different. That's what makes Bible prophecy so compelling and so divinely inspired. Here it is hundreds, even thousands of years later, and the prophecies are being fulfilled to the letter in every detail. I'll read on. Ellen White wrote her book, The Great Controversy, in the late 19th century against the background of circumstances that prevailed in the United States. Her world was divided between Roman Catholics and Protestants. She belonged to a tiny Adventist sect that was not welcome. She lived in a time when politicians at the state level and the national level were doing all they could to enforce Sunday observance. She experienced how, in some states, Sabbath keepers were actually put in prison. However, her world no longer exists. The underlying grand narrative of the great controversy between the forces of good and evil is as valid as ever, but it plays out in vastly different ways in our secular society that has a totally different religious and cultural composition. It is up to us to discern how this great controversy plays out in our 21st century Western world. In other words, we don't have to worry about that the scenario like what is found in the book Great Controversy, will develop in our modern world. We can go along with the ecumenical movement without danger. We can engage with other churches and expect that they will appreciate us and encourage us. And now I quote again, The great challenge for Sabbath-keeping Adventists is not to keep talking about an end-time scenario that is increasingly implausible, but to convince our fellow citizens that there is an immeasurable religious social, and health benefit in respecting the God-given six-plus-one rhythm of time. Did you hear that? Mr. Brownsman is lightly regarding the Sabbath. He considers it a God-given six-plus-one rhythm of time. While what he has said there is actually true, the Sabbath is much more than that. Even Sunday keepers know and believe that God gave us a six-plus-one rhythm of time. In fact, those who advocate Sunday rest laws are arguing the same thing. Just have a look at the European Sunday Alliance materials online. This is one of their key points. He goes on, and I quote, Man has been created with an internal clock, and not to respect that will be to their detriment. The Sabbath remains our best antidote against stress and burnout and our best channel for regaining moral strength. It is the divinely ordained instrument to change our spiritual batteries and to reconnect us with God and the people who are dear to us. But friends, this is the same argument that the Roman Catholics use to advocate for Sunday rest laws. And while I'm not surprised at Mr. Brownsma's European outlook, I'm surprised that he is willing to go on record and say those things. 
He's not saying that the Sabbath rest is divinely ordained for the seventh day. He's just saying that we need one day of rest in seven. Evangelicals and now Roman Catholics have been saying this for a long time to undergird their purpose to keep people worshiping on Sunday. They claim that the seventh-day Sabbath is no longer to be kept and have hidden plans for Sunday laws. He concludes with the following words. Let us not waste energy on trying to push an unrealistic Sunday law scenario, but promote and model a life in which the Sabbath rest, that is part of God's creation, holds center stage. Here he implies that the Sabbath rest is the creation Sabbath, which would, to a seventh-day Sabbath keeper, be the seventh day or Saturday, though to a Sunday keeper it could also be acceptable to them. Again, evangelical and Roman Catholic apologists for Sunday observance have used God's creation Seventh-day Sabbath to justify Sunday worship and Sunday laws. If you want to get it from a high-level Roman Catholic source, just go back to read Dies Domini, written by Pope John Paul II and published by the Vatican. This reminds me of what the Lord said to Jerusalem in Isaiah 29, verses 9-14. through That's Isaiah 29, verses 9 through 14. Listen carefully. Stay yourselves and wonder. Cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and hath closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book that is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. The Bible and its prophecies are a sealed book to those who refuse to accept its plain utterances. Mr. Brownsma has the spirit of deep sleep on him, and it has closed his eyes. All of his so-called wisdom, which he uses to raise his hand against God's plain teachings, will perish, and his so-called prudent counsel shall be hidden. My friends, I would not want to be Mr. Brownsma in the day of judgment. He will have nothing to say when the Bible's predictions come true. This man is scoffing at the idea that Sunday laws are coming and that the end-time events predicted in the book The Great Controversy are going to happen in detail just as predicted. What happened in Noah's day when scoffers mocked his predictions? Scoffers pointed to all the evidence that a flood was impossible, just as Mr. Brownsma points to so-called evidence that Sunday laws are impossible. Yet all the scoffing and all the evidence to the contrary, and despite all their unbelief, the destructive flood still came just as God predicted. Do you think the end-time events that God has predicted in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy will actually come true? Of course they will. God is merciful. God was merciful and gave the antediluvians plenty of time to think about the warning and get ready to go into the ark. 
but they hardened their hearts and would not hear the plain words of God about what to expect at the end of the 120 years of the prophecy. God is still the same God. He does not change. He still holds out mercy to the impenitent, but the prophetic utterances that He has given us in His Word will come to pass. There is not a shadow of doubt, either in heaven or in the hearts of His true followers here on earth. But friends, Mr. Brownsman's outrageous article is actually laying the foundation for God's people to abandon their distinctive understanding of end-time events and unite with the fallen churches of Babylon in ecumenical alliances and eventually even choose to follow them in Sunday observance. He is making a raid on last-generation doctrines and the concept of the remnant without saying so. He is trashing the great controversy theme that runs through Scripture and which has fully matured in the three angels' messages. This is, in fact, a direct attack on the threefold warning message that God has entrusted to the last generation of His people on earth to give to the lost. And now He is paraded around to camp meetings in order to promote His ideas as if they are the latest and the greatest. But this ecumenical screed is all about laying the foundation for what is next in ecumenical achievements. I was astonished by what I saw as I was sitting on that plane. There in front of my eyes was one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen. It has to do with the ecumenical movement, and it reveals who is really behind it. The Jesuit order arose within the Roman Catholic Church as a means of overthrowing Protestantism. Its secret agenda has almost been a complete success as Protestants now patronize Rome as if the Catholic Church is the best thing since sliced bread. Even God's people have become involved with them in ways that will surprise you. Not only was I surprised, but I was devastated to think that God's people would engage in ecumenical alliances within the Vatican, let alone the Jesuit order. But unfortunately, that is exactly what's happening. In the very place where the head of the Jesuits, the superior general often called the Black Pope, is consecrated, and where he has his headquarters, we are now collaborating with the order and engaging in collaborative activities with top leaders whose responsibility is to defend religious liberty and hold firm to Bible principles. Where is this heading? Just think about the history of the Jesuits for a minute. Under various disguises, the Jesuits worked their way into offices of state, climbing up to be the counselors of kings and shaping the policy of nations. The Jesuits rapidly spread themselves over Europe, and wherever they went, there followed a revival of popery. That's from The Great Controversy, page 234. Do you think they want to revive popery in every corner of the globe today, and in every denomination, and in every political organization? Of course they do. Do you think they have aimed their strategy at you and at your church? Why wouldn't these agents of the enemy try to derail your faith by getting you involved in their social justice agenda and drawing you closer to them and to Rome? If you associate with them, so they think, you will not fear them. And of course that's true. That actually happens when churches unite in the ecumenical spirit of the day. They lose their fear of what is coming. Remember that the whole purpose of the ecumenical movement is to get you to give up your distinctive beliefs, particularly your end-time doctrines and theology, your Protestant thought. It starts by engaging you in social projects that will make you think that if you give up something of your faith, you can have a lot of influence and access to a wider body of people. 
Listen to this statement from The Great Controversy, page 44. When the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy, and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. Have we reached the point, my friends, where the leading churches, not just of the United States, but also of the whole world, are uniting on points of doctrine that they see in a similar way? Have we reached the point in which, at least in uniting with Rome, we no longer proclaim our distinctive beliefs? But this is serious deception to make you unprepared for the crisis and the overwhelming surprise that will take the world by storm and cause you to miss out on salvation through Jesus Christ. And strangely enough, it is in the very name of Jesus Christ that the Jesuits lead out in the ecumenical movement. The Jesuit headquarters in Rome is in sight of the Vatican, perhaps a block or two away. Inside the building are the chambers where the Jesuits hold their top-level meetings and consecrate their general. The meeting room has a distinctive circular design. Once you see it, you will recognize it anywhere. This is the Curia, or administration building, of the Jesuit headquarters in Rome. Here in this building, the Jesuits sponsored a conference in October of 2018 called Global Partners Forum, entitled Faith Action for Children on the Move. What is a partner? A partner is someone or a group of people who join with others in an enterprise. In other words, the Jesuits held a discussion for its global partners, its colleagues, about its projects and plans. It held this meeting in its headquarters, where the Jesuits run their global operations for a group of churches, charities, and other NGOs that are concerned about child immigration or migration. It is an ecumenical engagement that was designed, like all other ecumenical activities, to unite disparate organizations and even organizations that may disagree with each other on various points, but who, through this activity, would promote understanding and friendship all in the name of unity and collaboration on urgent global social justice issues that all can support. Do you think this meeting at the Jesuit headquarters in Rome would be the place for someone who believes the three angels' messages? I don't think so. God's people should stay clear of those sorts of meetings. But that's not the case. Now church leaders are invited to participate in these ecumenical conferences held by the Jesuits. Attending the conference for the Jesuit Global Partners, is none other than Dr. Ganaun Diop, Director of the Public Affairs and Religious Liberty Department of the General Conference. Perhaps it is no small matter that he also spent some time while at the conference sitting on the dais, which is where the Jesuit Superior General sits when the Jesuits have their assemblies, and where the Pope sits when he visits the Jesuit headquarters. Not far away is the crucifix, looking down on the assembly. This is the very same crucifix before which the Jesuit general prayed when he was elected and consecrated. While some might not see the significance of this, or perhaps even excuse it, I can't help but wonder what heaven thinks of all this. Just think about this, my friends. Here's an Adventist leader of the General Conference taking up matters of importance to the Jesuits and to the Roman Catholic Church, such as ecumenical unity around social justice, in relation to the migration of children. Here is a man who should be keeping his distance from this organization, sitting in their meeting hall. How did we get to such a place?
Here's a very interesting statement. It's from Last Day Events, page 130. How the Roman Church can clear herself from the charge of idolatry we cannot see. And this is the religion which Protestants are beginning to look upon with so much favor, and which will eventually be united with Protestantism. This union will not, however, be effected by a change in Catholicism, for Rome never changes. She claims infallibility. It is Protestantism that will change. The adoption of liberal ideas on its part will bring it where it can clasp the hand of Catholicism. So in other words, if the Protestant churches adopt liberal theology that pretty much accepts everything, and including every lifestyle, religious practice, or that will justify sin, this will lead them back to Rome. Is that what is happening today? The Protestant churches have joined hands with Rome after they became very liberal. Even many Pentecostal churches have joined the movement. Is the remnant church suffering the same affliction? Are we plagued by a liberal movement from within? And apparently it is now morphed to the point where we now see ecumenical ties that were once the domain of regular mainstream and evangelical churches now coming into God's last day remnant church. We can say that Protestantism has changed. It has adopted liberal ideas, and now it has clasped the hand of Catholicism. But it isn't just Protestantism in general. It is specifically the very ones whom God has chosen to give the three angels messages, to expose the false doctrines of Rome and the activities of the Jesuits, and call people out of Babylon to join God's faithful people who keep all of his commandments. And that's not all. How can a Bible-believing, Seventh-day Sabbath-keeping believer join hands in collaboration with the very ones who want to bring in a Sunday law and persecute Sabbath-keepers, according to Revelation 13? How can they enter into the headquarters of the Jesuit order and engage in cooperation with the very society that is seeking their ruin, all in the name of social justice? 2 Corinthians 6.15 says, And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Friends, I don't get it. Why does this man, who is supposed to represent the message to come out of Rome, sit in the very same seats where the Jesuits plan their strategic assaults on God's church? Why does he collaborate with the Jesuit order at all? It's obvious to me that we are living at the very end of time, my friends. It is patently clear to me that we are seeing the fulfillment of prophecies that have been long predicted, and it is a two-pronged attack. On the one hand is the re-education of God's people to reject the idea that they are the last generation and that Sunday laws are not coming. On the other hand is the religious liberty leader of the General Conference, of all people, reaching out to Rome and collaborating with Jesuit conferences designed to bind God's people in ecumenical chains. This is the very organization that wants to restrict religious liberty. What a shock! What a bold and stunning maneuver. How should we ever give the true message that God has given us to proclaim? Are these people serious about our faith? I'm burdened by this, my friends. I'm greatly troubled. God's church has become a global partner of the Jesuits and participates in religious conferences organized by the Jesuits by its religious liberty director. I have no idea what kind of defense Dr. Diop will give concerning this serious breach of faith but I can assure you that it will be rather insipid.
He might say that he was there to put an Adventist spin on their perspective and help them see our viewpoint. He might even suggest that there is the need to let the Jesuits and other partners see that SDAs are really good people and that we can influence them not to push for Sunday laws when the time comes, particularly if we get to know them now. But that's not very satisfactory to me. Notice this powerful statement from the Great Controversy, page 587. The leaders of the Sunday movement may advocate reforms which the people need, principles which are in harmony with the Bible. Yet, while there is with these a requirement which is contrary to God's law, His servants cannot unite with them. Nothing can justify them in setting aside the commandments of God for the precepts of men. Friends, we have to think about the message our actions send. I have made mistakes in my life, we all do, but when I represent an organization and I am a responsible leader of that organization, I have to consider how my actions will affect the people I influence. God instructs us to be separate from Babylon's organizations and people. Yes, we can witness to them, but not by collaboration in ecumenical social justice projects. Political activism has overtaken the preaching of the three angels' messages. Have we stretched our hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power? You remember that statement in the Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 581, don't you? Protestantism shall stretch her hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power, when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism, when, under the influence of this threefold union, our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government. Here's another statement from the Testimonies for the Church, Volume 7, page 107 and 108. Our work is to proclaim to the world the first, second, and third angels' messages. In the discharge of our duties, we are neither to despise nor to fear our enemies. We are to treat with kindness and courtesy those who refuse to be loyal to God. But we are never, never to unite with them. So there it's very clear, my friends, we are not to unite with these Jesuits in any kind of activity. This is reaching across the gulf to clasp hands with the Roman power. But this is not the first time Dr. Diop has been connected to Rome. In October of 2016, as Secretary General of the Conference of Secretaries of Christian World Communions, he led a group of church leaders to Rome for their annual meeting, and while there, led them to the Vatican to have an audience with the Pope. Not only is he leading himself there, he is leading others as well. Pope Francis gave them an ecumenical speech. And as he clasped hands with the Pope, Pope Francis, I thought about how he has reached across the gulf. Dr. Diop was far more than an observer or a general participant. As Secretary General, he would have had a lot to do with planning the event. My friends, I'm burdened by these developments. I'm not trying to criticize. I don't have any animosity to anyone, but I am burdened for the glory of God and the loss of souls. These men give up so much for a little handshake or a little pat on the back by men who do not have their best interests in mind. This is not God's plan for His true people. God's people are to shine like a light on a hill. If they follow the Lord and live by His principles, they will ride the high places of the earth and be fed with the heritage of Jacob. Why do they have to try to impress those who really have no sympathy with them? My friends, please let us pray for Dr. Diop and his supporters that they will see the direction they're heading. Let us pray that they will see their danger and change their behavior and give glory to God. Let us pray.
Our Father in heaven, how can this be? How can your people be led into an ecumenical alliance with Rome? Can they not see that this is forbidden? Can they not see that this is reaching across the gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power? Please, Father, fortify us for the struggle ahead. We are facing an amazing foe. He is bold and defiant. He is not going to give up. He's not going to let go. Please, Father, cover us with your hand of protection. We need it so badly. And thank you for revealing these things. May we be faithful until Jesus comes. May we receive of the latter rain that is refreshing and that will fortify God's people for the final conflict. And most importantly of all, please prepare us for living in the world of light where there is no darkness at all. In Jesus' precious and holy name I pray. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The song you've just heard is entitled Flee as a Bird, sung by Jennifer Buttery. It's recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called Seekers of Your Heart. If you would like to have a copy of this CD, 
Just send $16 postpaid to U.S. addresses, and we'll send you one. Please mention the Seekers of Your Heart CD. Our Australian listeners can order through our Victoria office at 03-5963-7011. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, Christine Lagarde fears age of anger. IMF boss Christine Lagarde on Tuesday launched a strong call for renewed international cooperation, fearing the advent of an age of anger where inequalities could soon surpass those of the golden age of capitalism in the 19th century. In a speech to the prestigious Congressional Library in Washington, the executive director of the International Monetary Fund pleaded for a new multilateralism that would ensure that the economic benefits of globalization are shared by all and not just by a few. In its view, global trade must be repaired. We must continue de-escalating trade tensions and improving the trading system, eliminating distorting subsidies and protecting intellectual property rights. Lagarde also advocates a new system of international taxation. Companies now have a global presence, but governments have not found the right tax response, she said, denouncing tax optimization strategies that leave too much tax revenue on the table. Without this reimagined international cooperation, the head of the IMF fears that in 20 years, by 2040, the inequalities do not surpass what they were during the golden age of capitalism. The age of anger would see monopolistic giants of technology face weak states, favored categories of population able to live up to 120 years when millions of others will suffer from poverty. The gap between aspirations and realities could feed anger and bitterness, she said. Asserting herself as an optimist, Lagarde says an age of inventiveness is possible where economies will benefit from renewable energies, greater integration of women into the world of work, and where large corporations would show social responsibility. Economic integration is vitally important in order for there to be a one-world government and a one-world religion, as the Bible predicts. Christine Lagarde is pushing economic integration and global taxation dutifully. But even as she does, the anger and its consequential violence creates perplexity among the nations. And there shall be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Luke 21, verse 25. Next, Australia's Prime Minister announces plans to restrict discrimination based on religion. The Prime Minister of Australia announced plans to make it illegal to discriminate based on a person's religious beliefs. This is one of the key recommendations made by the long-awaited Ruddock Review into Religious Freedom, which Scott Morrison will unveil. Prime Minister Morrison will take a religious discrimination act to the federal election. Under the act, religious discrimination would be treated as seriously as sexual and racial discrimination. The review, led by former Liberal Attorney General Philip Ruddock, 
was launched during the same-sex marriage debate last year. At the time, some MPs argued marriage equality could potentially impact on the religious freedoms of Australians of faith. The treatment of gay students and teachers in religious schools has been another key issue in the religious freedoms debate in Parliament. The government has referred the issue to the Australian Law Reform Commission for review. The Catholic Archbishop of Sydney, Anthony Fisher, told the Australian the proposed changes were necessary because society had changed. A lot of supporters of traditional marriage felt that they were one way or another discriminated against, including being sacked for just saying they supported traditional marriage, he was quoted. The Prime Minister and Attorney General Christian Porter will today announce their intention to accept 14 of the review's 20 recommendations immediately. Note that the Archbishop of Sydney seems to think that God's law can change with a changing society and that the new restrictions were necessary. Christians and their religious liberty will be restricted. The legal house of Christian believers is being gradually surrounded. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compass the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. Genesis 19, verse 4. Next, Apple CEO doubles down on platform's acceptable criteria. Apple CEO Tim Cook delivered a message to white supremacists in a speech in front of the Anti-Defamation League, you have no place on our platforms. Cook delivered the speech while accepting the Courage Against Hate Award, and as Apple CEO, Cook has taken action to combat hate speech on the company's platforms. The company was first of a wave of tech companies to remove content by InfoWars host Alex Jones. At Apple, we believe that technology needs to have a clear point of view on this challenge, Cook said, referring to how to handle the influx of hate on tech platforms. There is no time to get tied up in knots. That's why we only have one message for those who seek to push hate, division, and violence. You have no place on our platforms. Since the early days of iTunes, Cook said, Apple has banned music that promotes messages of white supremacy and the company is still willing to prohibit conspiracy theorists. In the past, Cook has been a vocal critic of tech peers like Facebook, which has been criticized for being slow to remove misinformation on its platform. When asked in an interview about how he would deal with Facebook's data privacy issues if he were in CEO Mark Zuckerberg's shoes, Cook said infamously, I wouldn't be in this situation. If we can't be clear on moral questions like these, then we've got big problems, Cook said in his ADL speech. At Apple, we are not afraid to say that our values drive our curation decisions. And why should we be? Doing what's right, creating experiences free from violence and hate, experiences that value creativity and new ideas, is what our customers want us to do. Openly gay Tim Cook is advocating that viewpoints that do not comply with his moral criteria, which is upside down, including mainstream conservative viewpoints, be removed from his platform. He uses extremist views, i.e. white supremacists, to dampen opposition to removal of broader conservative content. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness and that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Isaiah 5, verse 20. Next, Church of England to create baptism-style ceremonies for transgenders. 
The Church of England has encouraged its clergy to create baptism-style ceremonies for transgender people to welcome them into the Anglican faith. New pastoral guidance advises clergy to refer to transgender people by their new name, though it stops short of being a baptism. The guidance, which was approved by the House of Bishops, also details how elements including water and oil can be incorporated into the service. It also advises that as part of a special service, they can be presented with gifts, such as a Bible inscribed in their chosen name or a certificate. The guidance notes, for a trans person to be addressed liturgically by the minister for the first time by their chosen name may be a powerful moment in the service. As a central part of the new service, called the Affirmation of Baptismal Faith, the minister lays their hands on the candidate or candidates, addresses them by name, and prays for them. And while the church is clear that this does not constitute a second baptism, it explains that the Affirmation of Baptismal Faith enables people to renew the commitments made in baptism and in a public setting that provides space for those who have undergone a major transition to rededicate their life to Jesus Christ. It is understood that traditionalists in the church blocked a change in the liturgy and stopped this from becoming a new blessing. Instead, the guidance shows how existing clergy can be used to accept transgender people into the church and welcome them with their new name. The existing right to an affirmation of baptism is, in this case, used to mark their change in identity. The Bishop of Blackburn, Julian Henderson, chair of the House of Bishops, Delegation Committee, which oversaw the guidance, said, We are absolutely clear that everyone is made in the image of God and that all should find a welcome in their parish church. This new guidance provides an opportunity rooted in Scripture to enable trans people who have come to Christ as the way, the truth, and the life to mark their transition in the presence of their church family, which is the body of Christ. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, Luke 17, verse 28. Next, Cardinal Pell found guilty. Cardinal George Pell has been convicted by an Australian court on charges of sexual abuse of minors, according to media reports and CNA sources close to the Cardinal. A judicial gag order has restricted Australian media coverage of the trial since June. Despite the gag order, a story published December 11 on the Daily Beast website first reported that a unanimous verdict of guilty had been returned by a jury on charges that Pell sexually abused two altar servers in the late 1990s, while he was Archbishop of Melbourne. The verdict reportedly followed three days of deliberations by the jury, the second to hear the case. An earlier hearing of the case is reported to have ended in early autumn, with a mistrial after jurors were unable to reach a verdict. The conviction has not yet been confirmed by the Australian judiciary, and the gag order on Australian media could remain in place for several months. Pell will be reportedly sentenced in early 2019. He will not be incarcerated prior to his sentencing. Citing deference to the gag order, the Vatican has declined to comment on the reports of the guilty verdict. Pell has been accused of multiple instances of sexual abuse of minors. In May, lawyers for the Cardinal petitioned the County Court of Victoria to split the allegations into two trials, one dealing with the accusations from Melbourne and another dealing with accusations related to his time as a priest in Ballarat in the 1970s. 
As the trial for the Melbourne allegations began in June, the judge imposed a sweeping injunction preventing media from reporting on the progress of the case. The gag order reportedly remains in force over concerns that the verdict could influence the outcome of the second trial, which is expected to be heard early in 2019. Pell has been on leave from his position as Prefect of the Holy See Secretariat for the Economy since 2017. Pell asked Pope Francis to allow him to step back from his duties to travel home to Australia to defend himself against the charges, which he has consistently denied. Prior to his appointment to the Secretariat for the Economy in 2014, Pell served as the Archbishop of Sydney. In April 2018, Robert Richter, the lead attorney on Pell's legal team, refuted the allegations made against Pell. The allegations are a product of fantasy, the product of some mental problems that the complainant may or may not have, or just pure invention in order to punish the representative of the Catholic Church in this country, Richter said. Richter further said that the accusations were not to be believed and were improbable, if not impossible. Until the imposition of the gag order in June, Pell had been the subject of sustained media attention in Australia, prompting the order. The extent of hostile attention directed at Pell by several Australian outlets, even prior to the accusations being made, led to a public debate in some sections of the Australian media about whether it would be possible to find an impartial jury for the Cardinal. Although the gag order was issued, one source called the integrity of the proceeding into question. In remarks to CNA, he called the trial a farce and a witch hunt. He said that Australian prosecutors were determined to secure a conviction despite the earlier mistrial. They keep going until they got the jury who'd give them what they want, the source told CNA. Last week, another Australian court overturned the recent conviction of the former Archbishop of Adelaide, Philip Wilson, on charges he failed to report complaints of sexual abuse. Newcastle District Court Judge Roy Ellis said December 6 that the Crown had failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Archbishop Wilson did not report abuse committed by Father James Fletcher when Fletcher was charged in 2004 with child abuse, which occurred between 1989 and 1991. If the decision is confirmed, Pell can appeal to the Supreme Court in Victoria and from there to the Australian High Court. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the Mother of Harlots, and Abominations of the Earth. Revelation 17, verse 5. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now, you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.